would open your Bibles up to John chapter 15. Um, today we're going to just continue plugging away, working our way through the, the Gospel of John. Uh, and where we find ourselves right now in the Gospel of John is we're kind of immersed right smack dab in the middle of Jesus speaking on the topic of persecution, warning his disciples that persecution is about to come. And so he's warning them, uh, telling them, teaching them about this persecution, this rejection, this hatred that the disciples are going to experience on behalf of him. So last week we looked at verses 18 through 20. Today we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 25. And then next week we're going to be looking at verses 26 all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. Um, so continuing to just kind of work, work our way through uh, this topic of persecution. Uh, and as I mentioned last week, this, this, this passage, these verses are really heavy, really uh, weighty, really difficult at times to digest spiritually. Nobody wants to be hated. Right? This isn't something that you long for. I don't wake up in the morning and just think, man, I hope that people hate me today. Nobody, nobody thinks that. Nobody longs for that. And so when we read this, at times when we read this passage, this is a really difficult one to, to digest, something really difficult to delight in. And as I searched my own heart, I found that I have this deep longing for acceptance. But Jesus is telling us here in these verses that following him, in following him, we will at times experience persecution. We will at times experience hatred. So although we have an eternal hope in Jesus, a hope that this life is not it, a hope that for eternity we will have life with him uh, Although we have a responsibility to love one another as Christ has loved us, and so loving one another in this self-sacrificing way, we will experience persecution. We will experience a hatred from the world. Those who abide in Jesus, those who remain in Jesus, those who trust in Him, cling in Him, abide in Him, walk with Him, will experience persecution because of their union with Jesus. And we learned last week that because we have experienced the mercy of God, because we have been chosen out of the world, the world will hate us. That's their reasoning. The, the world will extend to Jesus' disciples harassment, trouble, hostility, and mistreatment on behalf of their union with Jesus. If Jesus was persecuted, his disciples will be persecuted as well. Now, as difficult as a truth as that is, we find comfort in knowing that nobody knows the pain of rejection better than our God does. He was rejected first. He came and was, was rejected so that we might have life, so that we might have hope, acceptance through Him. So God displayed His love for us in that He came to earth to be crushed for our sins so that sinners might be forgiven and free and have hope. Therefore, we find comfort, as we learned last week, in being rejected by the world because we know that rejection from the world does not mean that we are rejected by God. Well, in our passage today, Jesus continues on with this argument by ultimately exposing the heart of this rejection from the world. 
And as we'll, we will see today, the world hates Jesus and his followers because the world ultimately hates God. But we will once again see that opposition against God does not fall outside of God's control. He's using this uh, strategically to carry out his will, to carry out his plan of redemption. In fact, the world's hatred against Jesus was foretold hundreds of years before it ever happened, which means that it was all a part of God's predetermined plan to save sinners like you and I, which should leave us with hope. If opposition was planned and foretold before it happened, then that means it has purpose. And if it has purpose, then we should therefore rejoice in it and cling to it with a hope. So let's go ahead and dive in, read these verses, and then we'll kind of unpack it slowly. So John chapter 15, verses 21 through 25 says this, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. All right, so let's... Let's go to verse 21. Verse 21, Jesus says, But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So there's an obvious question that we have to ask in, in order to get back into the rhythm of this passage. And that question is, is what will all of these things be? Well, given everything that Jesus has just said, all these things would be the hatred and the trouble and the persecution, the hostility the harassment that Jesus' disciples will soon experience. And they will experience these things because of Jesus, on account of his name. So because of the disciples' association with Jesus and their devotion to proclaiming the good news of Jesus, these disciples are going to experience persecution and hatred. And the same will be true of us. Because of your association with Jesus... The world is going to hate you. The world does hate you. You will experience persecution, not on account of your name, but on account of the name of Jesus. And that's really important for us to understand. What, what did you say? Why is that important? Is that what you asked, Caleb? I'm glad that you asked that. That's a great question. That's important because... If it's Jesus who's the recipient of this hatred, then it's Jesus who gets to determine the response to this hatred. If you are hated or if you are persecuted on behalf of the name of Jesus, then you must submit to how you retaliate to said persecution to Jesus. If persecution is directed towards the name of Jesus, then you do not have the freedom to respond in whatever way you please. You must respond in a Christ-honoring, Christ-exalting manner. It's not your name, it's not your fame, it's not your message that's being attacked. It's the name of Jesus, it's His fame, it's His message, it's His name that is being attacked. Therefore, we pray for strength and grace to respond in a Christ-honoring way 
to the hostility that we face on account of his name. And so community groups, do me a favor this week. Discuss that in more detail. What is a Christ-exalting, Christ-honoring way to respond to persecution, to respond to a hatred that is extended to you on account of Jesus' name? How do we as believers respond to this persecution? Well, the world will extend to you persecution on the name of Jesus. We see that in this first half of this verse. But then we see an interesting transition in the latter half of this verse. Jesus begins to explain the heart of their rejection, the real reason why the world will persecute them. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So as I looked back over this this chapter, I've begun to realize that Jesus has been using his relationship with the Father as an example of how Jesus should relate to both himself and one another. So for an example, this won't be on the screen, but you can look in your Bibles up to verse 9. And in verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. And he goes on to say, Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So how are you to love Jesus, or how are you loved by Jesus? Well, you're loved by Jesus in the same way that the Father has loved Jesus. How are you to obey Jesus? Just as Jesus has obeyed the Father. And now, on the topic of persecution, Jesus is saying that the root of their rejection on behalf of the name of Jesus is a result of a lack of knowing the Father. The world's relationship with Jesus impacts how the world relates to his followers. Well, in the same way, the world's relationship with the Father impacts how the world related to Jesus or how they interacted with Jesus. The world will hate you because they hated Jesus. And they hate Jesus because they do not know the one who sent Jesus. They do not know the Father. Now, this word for know is really important for us to understand. So back in verse 18, for example, at the start of last week's passage, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So in verse 18, Jesus is telling his disciples something important so that they might intellectually be aware of something that is going to happen in their future. He's giving them information so that they might know something. He wants his disciples to understand that persecution is coming. But now, Jesus is saying that this persecution is coming because the world doesn't know the Father. There's a difference here between these two words. The Greek word used here in verse 21 for know is different than the Greek word used for know back in verse 18. So, because it's a different word, we can safely conclude that Jesus is not saying that the world didn't have an intellectual understanding of the Father. They knew of the Father. They knew of God. They were intellectually aware of Him. They possessed the law. They had the Scriptures memorized. They boasted in their service of God. In fact, as we will see in next week's passage, they will kill the disciples thinking that they will be offering service to God. They knew who God was. Was. So Jesus is not speaking of an intellectual understanding here. He's not saying that the world is going to persecute his disciples because the world lacked information. 
No, what I think Jesus is saying here is that the world does not relationally know the Father. The world does not lack knowledge about God. They lack a relationship with God. There's a difference in knowing of someone and knowing someone. So, for example, if Caleb said, Ryan, hey, do you know Bryce Harper? I would say, yeah, I, I know who Bryce Harper is. And I could spit out some, some statistics to, to support my knowledge of him, right? So he is a baseball player who plays for the, the Phillies. He used to play for the Nationals. He left high school early to go play junior college baseball so that he could get drafted earlier. Bryce Harper is a really good baseball player. But here's the thing. I don't know Bryce Harper. If he came walking in, somehow miraculously was able to, to shimmy his way through the police officers, he wouldn't say, hey, Ryan, good to see you. I would, it, there, there's not a, a knowing relationship between he and I. I have no idea where he lives. I have no idea what his plans are next week. I don't know what food he likes. I do not know this brother. So do not let my knowledge of Bryce Harper fool you into thinking that I personally know Bryce Harper. There's a difference between intellectually knowing God and intimately knowing God. We see Paul talk about this uh, briefly in Romans chapter 1 where he says, For all they, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. It won't be on the screen. They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. So although this is not the main point of this passage, I think we should take heed to a warning that is uh, found in these verses. It's found in this truth. It's possible for you to know theology. It's possible for you to know of God, to be very educated in the Bible, and still not intimately, personally know God. There's a difference. Jesus is revealing the heart of the world's rejection of Jesus. If the world intimately knew God, if they intimately knew the Father, then they would have known Jesus. They would have recognized Jesus, trusted in Jesus. If the world submitted to, trusted in, and worshipped God, then they would have submitted to, trusted in, and worshipped Jesus. But because the world doesn't relationally know God, they extend to Jesus and his disciples hostility and hatred. The hatred we will experience flows out of a rejection of God. And Jesus begins to tease this out more in verses 22 through 24. Let's read those and unpack them a bit. Jesus says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Okay? So what is Jesus what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that he is the cause and the reason of the world's sin? Was the world guiltless before Jesus came, but Jesus just automatically, poof, caused them to sin? No, I, I don't think that's the case. The world is already guilty of sin. That, that ship has long uh, been sailed 
before Jesus came. Therefore, Jesus must be speaking about something specific here. So given the context, what I think Jesus is seeking to show his disciples is that the world's rejection of Jesus reveals their disconnected relationship with the Father. What Jesus is seeking to show them is to reveal the world's disconnected relationship with the Father. So when Jesus came, the the world was literally rejecting God in flesh. The embodiment of truth was standing right before their eyes, yet they suppressed the truth that they heard. The all-powerful God of the universe not only spoke to them, but he acted. He carried out miracles. He did the miraculous before them, yet they closed their eyes to this truth and rejected it. Jesus, in these verses, is showing us that the world's rejection of Jesus is not based on truth, it's based on, it's rooted in hatred. Here, Jesus cites both his words and his actions as proof of this. Both the things he said and the things he did give proof to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the creator of all things, the one who has come to save the world from sin and death. Yet the world wants nothing to do with him. He's claimed to be the bread of life. So in the same way that you need bread to live, you need Jesus to experience life, eternal life. He's claimed to be the light of the world, the one true guide to the world that is lost in darkness. He's claimed to be the door of the sheep and the good shepherd, the one who's committed to protecting his followers from harm. He's claimed to be the resurrection and the life, the one who possesses a power over life and death. He's claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. So the only way to the Father and the only source of truth and knowledge. He's claimed to be the true vine. If you're connected to him, meaning you can produce true God-glorifying fruit, and you can only do that if you're connected to him, he's continually proclaimed to be the one sent from the Father to save the world from sin and death. Yet we've seen the world continually reject him. So like an eight-year-old boy who plugs their ears and says, la, 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 I'm not listening. That's what we see here from the world. The world is not rejecting Jesus because Jesus didn't cite enough good sources. There's ample amount of evidence. They're rejecting Jesus because they do not know the Father. They're rejecting Jesus because they hate the Father. Therefore, they stand guilty of sin. The world's rejection of Jesus is not based on truth. It's rooted in hatred. Now, Jesus doesn't simply come proclaiming the message of God. He came and did the works of God. And he references that, I believe, in verses 23, uh, no, 24. And so that means that the world witnessed the works of God, and they turned away from these works of God. So think about this. Just in this gospel alone, we've seen Jesus turn water to wine. He's healed the sick. He's healed the paralyzed. He's fed the masses. He's gave sight to the blind. He's brought the dead to life. No one during this time was able to deny the works that Jesus was doing. Jesus called these works in this passage works that no one else did. Therefore, these actions were on a whole nother level on a a completely different level they were miraculous 
works. No one could explain them away. Jesus did things that were never done before. Nicodemus, for example, in John chapter 3, a Pharisee, a member of the crowd that was going to crucify Jesus, came to him and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. All right? So Nicodemus, which I believe Nicodemus becomes a believer later on, but his crew, they've come to the conclusion, nobody can do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. Right? So they, they can't dismiss the works that Jesus is doing. They acknowledge them as miraculous works. And then you fast forward to John chapter 11, verse 47. After Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, the chief priests and the Pharisees gather the council together and they conclude by saying, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there was no denying the works that Jesus did. You couldn't explain it away. You couldn't say, ah, well, Nicodemus was just asleep. He was taking a nap. No, that brother's been in the tomb for four days. There's a stench coming from his grave. And now homeboy is walking around talking to everybody. If we let Jesus keep doing what he's doing, then everybody's going to believe in him. They're going to acknowledge his work. So we have to do something. The world saw clearer than anyone could ever see, yet they still rejected Jesus. They suppressed the truth. The world rejected Jesus, not because the evidence wasn't there, but because they hated God. And so what does this tell us? It tells us that no matter how compelling the facts are, there will be some who reject the glorious message of Jesus. No matter how faithful you are in presenting the gospel, some will still reject. As a disciple of Jesus, you are to study and you are, seek, you are to seek to present the truth of the gospel in a compelling manner. But there will undoubtedly be times in your life when you are faced with rejection. Not because of the message that you are proclaiming is false, but because your audience hates Jesus. So whenever you're faced with the rejection, lower your weapons. Don't overcome evil with evil. There's a temptation to when you experience hatred to, ex to extend hatred back. When somebody hurts you, your natural reflect, uh, reflex is to hurt back. But with this understanding, let's just go ahead and say, no, we need to lower our weapons. May we carry out our response in the same way that Jesus would. So let's not overcome evil with evil. Let's repay evil with good as God calls us to do in his word. Let's bless and pray for those who persecute us. So in summary, the world's rejection of Jesus' disciples is ultimately the fruit of a deep-rooted hatred towards God. The, the problem is never the problem, right? It, there's a deeper issue here, and that is a disconnected relationship with God. They do not know God. They hate Him. Well, Jesus then says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. 
they hated me without a cause. So this one verse is pretty spectacular as I began to, to read it. There, I saw four things in it. I saw um, great irony in these verses. I saw great tragedy in these verses. I saw hope, and then I saw a warning for us. So let's, let's look at these four things really quickly. Um, Jesus here, first off, is quoting the scriptures, either Psalm 35, verse 19, or Psalm 69, verse 4 or he's referencing both. In both of these psalms, you see David, the king of Israel, crying out to the Lord because his enemies are great. But his enemies are not hating him because his failures are great. They're hating him without cause, without a reason. And they were wrongfully his foes, as he says. So Psalm 69, verse 4, for example, says, More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. So the, the hatred that David was experiencing was without cause and it was based on lies. And what Jesus is saying is that those psalms were prophetic. They're pointing to something greater. If the little K king of Israel was hated without cause, then how much more will the capital K, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Jesus, be hated without cause? The rejection Jesus was experiencing was foretold from the beginning. But ironically, it was those who possessed the law of God that were the enemies of God. Those who hated God were the ones who loved the law and delighted in it. Their rejection of God, their rejection of Jesus, the breaking of the law was a fulfillment of the law. There's so much irony packed into this one verse. So it's those who have the law and take ownership of the law that are rejecting the giver of the law, the one who has graciously given it to them. Their rejection and rebellion was foreseen and part of God's plan of redemption. The rejection of Jesus was the instrument to which God chose to use to redeem the world. So what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And this reiterates to us the truth that the world did not lack evidence. They lacked a love for God. The very thing that they took pride in keeping is the very thing that is condemning them. And ironically, in a strange way, the breaking of this law, the crucifixion of Jesus, is the fulfillment of the law. It's this, this strange, tragic irony that we see just taking place in this one verse. And it's very tragic as I began to, to dwell on this. God is not withholding the evidence. The evidence is clear about who Jesus is. And the evidence was and still is clear for us today. The King of Kings, the Creator of all things, stood before them. The evidence is there, yet they hated Him. And if they were familiar with the law of God, the thing that they claimed to delight in, then they should have recognized Jesus' words. And if they were familiar with the law of God, then they should have recognized Jesus' works. And they did, yet they responded with hate. They hated Jesus without cause. 
meaning the world had no ground to stand on in their rejection of Jesus. He was blameless. It was without reason. The blameless one was about to be beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross by the very people he had given the law to. But as ironic and as tragic as this is, I think there's so much hope found in this one verse. The rejection that Jesus faced did not catch Jesus by surprise. The rejection Jesus was experiencing was foretold from the beginning. And so Kayla and I are currently working our way through um, the Jesus Storybook Bible with our kids, with Truett and Ann Clayton. And at the end of every night, as we finish each story, I, I, I try to reiterate and teach my kids that, listen, God made a promise because God had a plan. So as you see in Genesis 1, or yeah, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, they ate of the fruit when they were deceived, when they disobeyed God. God makes a promise to make things right one day, and he made that promise because God had a plan, right? And that plan was to send Jesus. So I want you to understand in the same way that I want my kids to understand that God made a promise because God had a plan, and that plan was to send Jesus. So before the foundation of the world, it was the Father's plan to send His Son to be despised and rejected and mocked and ridiculed and crucified. Therefore, we can trust Him. And so we find promise after promise in Scripture saying that Jesus is going to come and take upon Himself the condemnation that we deserve so that we might be forgiven through faith in Him. It was always God's plan to display the world, to display to the world the magnitude of His love for the world through His suffering for them. The greatest of evils in this world did not catch God by surprise. They were spoken of long before they ever happened. The word that is written in their law had to be fulfilled. So that tells us that when God speaks, we can trust Him at His word. God's word, His promises, this will not return empty. They will always ring true. They will always come to pass. God cannot Lies. So think about the implications that come from that being true. The Bible is filled with promises that God gives to His people. He's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. He's promised to, to extend to us forgiveness in Christ Jesus. He's promised us life. He's promised us an eternal inheritance. He's promised us joy. He's promised us peace, strength. So listen to me. If God is faithful to keep His promises here, when He is on the receiving end of unjust hatred, then He will be faithful to keep His promises elsewhere. You can trust God's Word. You can trust His promises. Lean on them. Bank on them. May this verse that is filled with both irony and tragedy Give us hope to trust in the one who sovereignly sits on the throne at all the times. We serve a God who plans, orchestrates, and uses all things, even his own rejection, for good. So trust the God who is faithful to keep 
his promises. This has been a refreshing truth for me this week. Because being transparent, this has just been a difficult season of um, just life for my wife and I. It, it is public knowledge that we now we have a third kid on the way. The jump from two to three kids is a huge financial investment. And so there is at times a fear of, of finances. What if we don't have enough money? What if, what if we're not going to make it? But when you look at God's word and he promises that he will never leave nor forsake his people. And so keep your heart free from the love of money. You can bank on that. God will provide for you. So when we see the promises in God's word and we see God being faithful to carry out this promise that was spoken long before it ever happened, that he was going to be crushed for us, that he was going to be rejected unjustly. We can bank on his promises elsewhere. The truth Trust the God who is faithful to keep his promises. As we conclude, let me draw this last point out. May this verse here, verse 25, extend to us a warning. If Jesus is using his life as an example of what will happen to his disciples, then that means that Jesus' disciples will also be hated without a cause. You, like Jesus, will be hated by the world. But make sure that that hatred is without a cause. Your job is not to seek out persecution. Your job is not to be a jerk. Your job is not to give a valid reason for people to hate you. Your job is to be faithful to Jesus. Your job is to be faithful to Jesus by trusting in what he has accomplished on your behalf on the cross to trust in him, lean in him. Your job is to submit to him as Lord, to walk in obedience to him daily by loving one another as Christ has loved you. And your job is to proclaim the hope of the gospel to the world boldly and lovingly. The only reason why the world should hate you is because of your association with Jesus. So abide in Jesus' church. Trust in Jesus daily. Serve one another faithfully. And preach the gospel boldly. God will never leave you. He will never forsake you. You have an eternal hope in Him. Cling to that hope. Let's pray. Father, we love you. God, we thank you. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the promises that we find in your word. God, you have said that we will experience persecution, that we will experience hatred because of our association with you. And God, as we see today that, that there is a deeper issue going on there, that the rejection we face isn't based on knowledge it's not based on facts it's ultimately rooted in a hatred of you and so god give us compassion god soften our hearts to those who hate us who extend to us hatred god help us extend to our neighbors love and kindness and compassion and gentleness God, help us to be faithful Christians. God, help us to trust in you at all times. Leaning on your word. Help us to know your word well. 
cling to that. Holy Spirit, we need you. God, we love you. And help us to proclaim the gospel boldly. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Church, we love you. I love you. I hope that you are doing well. I hate that the, the circumstances are the way that they are this Sunday, but we will see you again next Sunday um, here at 10 a.m. at the YMCA. Blessings, church. To you also. To you also. <laughs>